you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So we are going to be um, in the book of John again, in chapter 3. So if you would, turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 22 through 36. John chapter 3. 22 through 36. Get myself there as well. So the house that we did live in um, on Main Street, we had a really cool neighbor. Uh, He would always come out and hang out with us. And he always hung out with our, uh, talked with us on our front porch. But he loved trading cards. He loved baseball cards, football cards, any sort of card there is. Right. And he would always come over and he would he would bring my kid. My kids have now thousands of cards in their in their stack, like in their in their keeping because of this man. And he just went out just buying new cards. And since my daughter, Gabby, is a soccer player, he's like, I never thought of soccer before. And so he and he began to research soccer and realized that they made soccer cards. And so he would buy her soccer cards as well. But in all of this. And he, every time he talks about cards, it's completely over my head because I know nothing. And so what I'm about to tell you is going to be on a very, very, very generic level as far as um, what it means to find the value of a card. But he would talk about how trading cards, um, you could have them sent into these companies that were known for uh, authentic, authenticity, uh, authenticating, I can't say the word. Can someone say it out loud for me? authenticating. There we go. Thank you. (laughs) Everyone on the internet's like, what's wrong with this guy? So you could send the card in and have them authenticate the card, its value, its worth. And they would measure it by, you know, the, the way the card looks, if there's any bins in the card, no bins in the card, uh, who the player is, if it was a rookie season, not a rookie season, and even who made the card, so on and so forth. So they would measure it by all of these things. But then they would also give the card a ranking as far as, I, and I don't understand the ranking system at all, but basically this company would then take your card, give it its ranking, its value, its worth, and send it back to the individual with this certificate of authentication. <laughs> Authenticity. I'm going to change the word. I'm not even going to go there anymore. I'm changing it. Verifying the value of the card and even its number. And so honestly, to me, it's just a card. It doesn't mean a whole lot. It doesn't mean anything at all. But to millions of people around the world, it, it means something. It's a big deal. It's a big industry. But here's the thing. Without those companies ranking those cards and certifying them in those ways, those cards really don't hold any value. They don't have any real worth except to the beholder, right? Right? But because those companies exist, they have the authority to then set on it that sort of value, that sort of worth and authenticity. When it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, we have to understand that it is not us who places any sort of authenticity on the gospel. There's a higher authority, a higher power who does that for us. The Father in heaven looks at Jesus and says that everything about Jesus, from his words 
to his work is the sealed certificate that we need, and it comes from the heavens. And so it says, though the Father sends Jesus to us, the beholder, right, the card holders, if you will, along with a certificate saying that Jesus is the real deal. Everything about him is the real deal. He is my beloved. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the radiant glory of God. He is the one. And so with that sort of authenticity, it does not matter what sort of value or worth we want to put on Jesus. That doesn't matter at all. It's all been verified in the heavens by the Father. So it's important for us as disciples to have the highest authority in the heavens, like the Father, to give that distinct value and worth of Jesus. And so with that seal that we have, the responsibility then becomes ours to trust the Father and to not waver in believing who Jesus is, not to waver in what He says or what He does. Everything about Jesus is perfectly certified and sealed in the heavens. So if your life were to be authenticated, would it be authenticated with the idea that you are making much of Jesus? Or would it be sent back as a fraud or as a forfeit? What would it be on the eternal certificate of authenticity? And so in today's story, John the Baptist really models for us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus that puts all of his trust in the authenticity of Jesus as coming from the Father. And there's markers along the way, kind of like a company would kind of have these markers of authenticity for these cards. There's markers of authenticity of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be truly a follower, a minister of God's word. And we see that right away with John the Baptist. Today, we'll see the disciples' seal of authenticity. And we'll see that seal of authenticity, those markings, in three different ways. We'll see it first in verses 22 through 24, the first marker that a disciple knows that baptism is all about Jesus. That the disciple knows that baptism is all about Jesus. Verses 25 through 30, the second marker that a disciple makes much of Jesus. A disciple makes much of Jesus. And this third marker we'll see this morning in verses 31 through 36. That a disciple receives the testimony of Jesus. That a disciple receives the testimony of Jesus. We'll walk through that all together. But let me read verses um, 22 through 36 together, and then we will get to it. So after this, that is after Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. 
And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The first marker of authenticity of a disciple is that a disciple knows baptism is all about Jesus. Verses 22 through 24. And so Jesus had just concluded this conversation with Nicodemus. And so he and the disciples kind of step out of Jerusalem and go out into the countryside. And there they were ministering to one another. Jesus was teaching them. They remained there. So Jesus' approach to ministry right away is not, all right, how do I get into Jerusalem and get the biggest crowd around me and start talking about these things? Rather, he heads out into the countryside with his disciples in a very simple yet focused manner. He is looking to make disciples and not just make disciples, but make disciples who make disciples. Because at the end of the day, Jesus knows at the end of his ministry, he is ultimately needing if you will, if we could say that God needs anything, disciples to carry on the mission, to carry on making disciples. And so how does Jesus do this? It says here that they were baptizing. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 gives us the footnote of how this is going down. There's this picture that Jesus and his disciples are out in the countryside, and now they're doing the baptism. And so here's the footnote. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So, yeah, we got we heard it right. Jesus was out in the countryside with his disciples and they were doing baptisms. But it wasn't Jesus who was doing the baptisms. He was teaching his disciples to do the baptism. And this would make sense because if we get to Matthew chapter 28 and we look at the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go and make disciples and baptize, it doesn't catch them off guard. It doesn't throw them off. They're not confused. They understand exactly what Jesus is talking about because from the beginning, Jesus began to teach them what it meant to be a disciple and how to make them. And so then, there's this conversation. It seems like the way that this is structured, that there is a problem. And here's the problem. Verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. 
And so it seems now we have this, what might seem or appear to be this competition of baptisms, right? Or at least this is the setup. But I think something we need to draw attention to here is this, that John is up in the north. Jesus is now in the south. John had baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And then after that baptism, John began to head away and head up to the north. Jesus was down south, heading south towards Jerusalem in the countryside. Basically, John the Baptist creating room for Jesus to do his thing. And this is the only time that we see John the Baptist and Jesus, their ministry, begin to overlap. When you read the other synoptic gospels, you're, you're, what you're seeing is that John the Baptist, his ministry ends, and then Jesus' ministry begins. But we're kind of clued into that here. And so over this short period of time, we begin to see how their ministry overlaps. But John knows that it's not about him. It's not about his church. It's not about his pews being filled, so to speak. But it's about Jesus. And until the Lord tells him to stop, he's going to continue on doing what he's supposed to be doing. That is leading people to repentance. Baptizing them. Telling them to follow Jesus. And so he kept on baptizing. And why did he keep on baptizing? Because the water there was plentiful. And people kept coming to be baptized. It wasn't as though Jesus was, or John the Baptist was out there going, Hey, you guys need to follow me. Follow me. Don't follow that guy, but follow me. But people kept, his popularity had risen in Israel. People knew who he was. And so they kept flocking to him. But John wasn't holding them to himself. He had an aim. He had an objective, a purpose. He wasn't competing against the Savior. In verse 24, it says, For John had not yet been put in prison. The gospel writer John here, not to be confused with John the Baptist, but he interjects this parenthetical notation to let us know that, hey, the ministries did overlap for a short period of time, and then John was arrested. And then it was all Jesus from that point. Because we have to recall also that the gospel of John was written about 30 years after the other gospels were written. And the other gospels are sitting there saying that John was arrested and then Jesus began his ministry. And here comes the Apostle John saying, well, there was a small window of time. And John does that even with the wedding at Cana. He's the only one who's written about that first miracle of Jesus, right? No other gospel writer has done that. But John, being the beloved one, if you will, knows this and writes this into the script. But he does not contradict the other books of the Bible. He makes it very clear. This is operating in conjunction with Matthew, Mark. And Luke. So this marker of authentication—it <laughs> is stuck there. I can't change it now. I'm done, and it's on the internet forever. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we can have fun here. This only proves the point that it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Don't follow me, because you will be a mess forever. Okay. So this marker for John the Baptist as a disciple was this intentional move to make room for Jesus, right? To make sure, Jesus, this is now you. You're on the scene. 
Well, what about you? What about us? Is that a marker of our life? That we're wanting to make more room for Jesus in our life? Or are we trying to call the crowds to us? Kind of be in competition with the Lord himself. The biggest accomplishment for us as disciple makers is to see disciples being made and then turning around and trusting Jesus and then calling others to repentance and leading them to the waters of baptism and then just simply getting out of the way. I'm not saying we don't teach them everything that the Lord has commanded and so forth. But what I'm, what I'm not saying is that we call them unto ourselves. That's not what we do. The beauty is that the gospel continues on generation after generation, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And there are generations of disciples who die and pass away. But the gospel lives on. And sometimes we can make making disciples or even baptizing new believers all about us. All about our church, all about our name in the community, how we look on the internet to others. And often we try to allure more people to ourselves with things like baptism. And that's the unfortunate reality is that we will, under the guise of baptism and being faithfulness, we use it as a ploy to pull more people in. We manipulate our community. And so we have to be careful not to rob the Lord of his due glory, not to be thieves. We are not the ones who change hearts. We are not the ones who open the eyes of the blind. We are not the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the reason for our baptism. And so as disciples of Jesus, just like John, we must tell other disciples to run to Jesus, yes, we have a work to do. We have a gospel to preach. We have um, uh, baptisms to perform, but it's not about us. It's about him. And so we need to constantly move away from trying from the spotlight. And to lead others to stepping into the glorious light of Jesus. I heard John MacArthur preach on this passage And he used this illustration I thought was very helpful, saying that ministers or disciples are like stars, just little lights in the sky, right? At nighttime, it it lights up a little bit, but it's not very much. And if the sun were to somehow disappear and go away, the, the light of the stars wouldn't be enough to illuminate the earth, right? It wouldn't be much at all. And so we have to recognize that we are little lights. And when the sun rises in the daytime, you can't see us. All you can see is the sun completely taking over. That is the point. That is the point that we are to point others to the sun. And so not only are we to point others to Jesus as we lead them to the waters of baptism, but we are to teach them to do the same. Jesus was discipling his own guys and he was teaching them to call others to repentance and then baptize them. We see that. We'll see that next week in John four. 
Jesus didn't make this act or this this work of baptism, if you will, something that is not reproducible, something that is untouchable, something that is unreachable. Jesus didn't say you had to reach a certain standard to be able to do this. The only requirement is repentance and faith in Jesus. Then you're qualified. And that's what Jesus is doing. I don't need to just sit here and do this for you guys. Let me show you how to do this. Teaching them how to love. And so here at Redeemer, if you're, if you're a member with us, one of the things we love to do is have you baptize people you may lead to the Lord. You know, families whose kids are coming to faith for fathers or mothers uh, to baptize their own children. But even in the sense of evangelism, if you go out and share the gospel with somebody and they come to saving faith, we want you to baptize them. We don't want just me or one of the other pastors to be the, the holy guys who are constantly leading this out. If Jesus could delegate this responsibility, well, so can we. And it forces us, it forces us to then have to slow down and actually consider what discipleship is. Right? Whenever you lead someone to, to faith or your kids want to be baptized or whatever it is, you have to begin to actually think, what is it I'm, I'm calling this person to? Right? The weight and the gravity of discipleship falls on you, but in a good way. So I want to call you this morning. If you have baptized someone, then how are you leading them to Jesus and not yourself? How are you constantly making more room for Jesus in your relationship with that person that you have led to the waters of baptism? If you know that it's time to lead someone to the waters of baptism, how is it that you will show them that this life is all about Jesus? What are you going to do to demonstrate that for them? And maybe you need to just simply, you're sitting here under the preaching of the gospel and you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, but now you're realizing, I need to take that next step in following Christ and follow through in the waters of baptism because you need to make your life all about Jesus. And so I want to call you to respond today. I want to call you, wherever you're at in all of this, to be thinking and prayerfully considering how you need to respond to the Lord. And this is the beauty of John the Baptist's ministry. His baptism was preparing for Jesus, pointing to Jesus. And now disciples are going to Jesus and being baptized by Him. And with that, we will begin to see how John the Baptist takes this conversation and uses it to make much of Jesus. And so the second marker A disciple makes much of Jesus. Verses 25 through 30. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose. The word has traveled to John the Baptist and his crew. So some of John's disciples and a Jew were discussing purification. We we don't exactly know what the discussion is. The gospel writer doesn't clue us in onto the details of this conversation, but we can assume that there is some conversation if the Old Testament practice of ritual cleansing 
was somehow linked to or maybe the same thing as the baptism of John. And we talked about this a little bit when Jesus was at the wedding in Cana. It was the jars that he turned the water into wine were jars of purification. And so we began to see the gospel writer cluing us into or at least just kind of hinting at this picture of purity, of cleansing, of sanctification that will ultimately come through the washing away of our sins by the blood of Christ. So regardless of what this conversation was in all its details, what we're aware of is that these outsiders, if you will, were looking at what Jesus was doing and what John the Baptist was doing, and they saw an issue. And so what did they do? Verse 26, they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, and notice they have this high level of respect for John the Baptist. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan. Notice they don't even mention Jesus's name. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And so they have this. Obviously, they have this issue with what's going on. Perhaps they've been missing the message all along. And so they seem to have this issue, but John the Baptist has zero issue with this. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John is a humble man. He's a humble man. I mean, not only has he lived in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, but now that Jesus comes onto the scene, he goes even lower in saying, look, it's not about me. It's about him. You can't get any more humble than this, any more low than this. Because John the Baptist knows his role in life. That his role was given to him from God. And so he clearly communicates. Look, guys, you yourselves know this. You bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. John the Baptist is making it clear that he is not the anointed one. He is not the chosen Christ. He is not the one. He's not the anticipated suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is not that. And he has made that known in his testimony all along. You know who I am not. Now, remember who it is that I am. He says, I have been sent before him. I am the messenger. I am the one who comes and prepares the way for the Lord. I am the forerunner. I was destined for this. This is what God has given me the task to do, to prepare the way for the son of righteousness, the one who has healing in its wings to come in and purify the church. And so John the Baptist then goes, hey, let me break it down for you. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So what John is saying is Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the groom and there is a bride and the bride is ultimately the church. And so he begins to speak in this language, a familiar language, even of the Old Testament, where God would constantly refer to his people, Israel, as his bride and he would refer to himself as their husband. So this language is not unfamiliar, but something that is very close to home. And when we get into the New Testament even further, we will see that that metaphor continues on 
that imagery continues on that Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. And we see that glorious picture even into the book of Revelation. So then, if John the Baptist is saying that he's not the bridegroom, right, but Jesus is, and he's not the one claiming the bride for himself, because that's what John the Baptist is not doing. Jesus is the bride, and, or bridegroom, and that's his bride, the church. It's not mine. So then the question is, then who are you, John the Baptist? And he says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man. He's the best man in this divine wedding that is taking place. And so he takes a minute to tell of his role in this divine wedding. That this best man is the one who stands and hears the bridegroom. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John the Baptist has stood with Jesus. He has heard Jesus. He rejoices greatly at the sound of Jesus' voice. And so in this divine wedding, if John the Baptist could give this a best man speech, it could possibly sound like this. I know Jesus. I've stood with him and heard his words. And imagine John the Baptist looking at the bride as he's given the speech. Jesus is the one, the perfect eternal husband. I know him. He will hold true to his word, to his covenant, his promise. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never belittle you or abandon you, abuse you or hurt you. The bridegroom is going to save you from your sins and he will not punish you for your sins. He will take the punishment for you. And every time you hear his voice, you won't be in fear of him. You won't be scared of him. You will fall more and more in love with him. He is for you. He is not against you. You have a good husband, church. Trust him. Believe him. Worship him. And because John the Baptist is seeing that all eyes are going to Jesus, he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I mean, at first glance, you're going, okay, how can your joy be complete here? I mean, Jesus hasn't died on the cross. He hasn't resurrected yet. He hasn't ascended to the Father. Well, that's not the picture here. The joy, the completed joy of John is wrapped up in this, that the world is beginning to see Jesus. John's mission and purpose was to call the world to see the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And now they're seeing him. It's evidenced in this conversation. Hey, John, everybody's going to Jesus. Yes, that's the point. And so now his joy is complete. And so therefore he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. D.A. Carson puts it well when he says that must is the determined will of God. This is how it is supposed to be. This is, how it, uh, this is how it's supposed to be from on high. John the Baptist knows that this is the will of God. In part, it is his heavenly assignment that once Christ makes his entrance, that the forerunner, that is John, begin to decrease so that Christ would increase. So that 
the name of John and the visibility of John begin to wither away and dimly move out of sight and Jesus come into full, perfect focus. But this is not just the assignment of John the Baptist. This is the assignment of us all as disciples. Is making much of Jesus a marker in your life? Is making much of Jesus a marker in your life? Or are you known of making much of something else or someone else? In the weird kind of circles that I run in are just a bunch of pastors, uh, generally speaking. And what I've noticed, and this is not, I'm not excluded from this. I have very much had to deal with my own heart in this. But pastors can become very jealous of other churches, other churches that are getting notoriety or popularity. And the jealousy is often, um, it's misunderstanding what our calling and our ministry is or what it means to make disciples. That's usually where it's rooted. We often make ministry kind of about us, our personality, our preaching ability, our ability to pronounce words, right? And we often also want the tangible results the number of people in our pews, the number of baptisms, the number of dollars in our uh, budget. But that's not what it's about. Let me give kind of a tangible illustration to this. And this is an observation that I've had. And I could be completely wrong of this. But here goes. We all know that there are some very large, impactful churches in the area. Very large, significant churches And there's a very large church in our area with the slogan, Welcome Home, right? What I have seen is, from that point, other churches start to take on that slogan, Welcome Home. I've seen it on marquees. I mean, churches that never had that slogan before have now taken on that slogan. It's kind of this marketing strategy. Well, wow, that's really warming and inviting to the seeker and And getting people in the door and just like, okay, yeah, I really want to do that. But I think the slogan, the slogan is fine. There's no issue with that. But the point I'm getting at is that there may be this undercurrent of jealousy that is happening across the area. And it's happening with pastors, with, with churches, that we're constantly in competition with one another. We're trying to outcompete. We're trying to step up our game to match others. I mean, imagine if during this time with Jesus and John the Baptist, John the Baptist responded to this going, oh, yeah, you're right. You know what? We need to step up our game. We need to find out what Jesus is doing so that we can get more people to come to us. That's kind of what's happening. Church around here is a competitive sport. It really is. It's a competitive sport. Here's what I want our churches to be known for. And understand, for those of you who don't know me, Redeemer Church is not the only church in town, not the end-all, be-all church. We should not be the only church for everybody in this city. God has raised up pastors and churches to take care of His people in this city, and that's okay. That's the kingdom of God. But here's what I want to be known for. I want to be known as the church that delivers the best man speech. You hear me? I don't want to be known as the church that's trying to compete 
with Jesus' baptisms, I want to be the church that is known for giving the best man speech. And by that I mean preaching the gospel. Making much of Jesus in every single way. With no ulterior motive. No desire to try to manipulate people into following you and coming to us. But really, pure motives. Making much of Jesus. I tend to watch the eyes of pastors widen when I tell them that I have no desire to pastor everyone in the city. And I'm even okay in recommending other healthy churches to people who are looking for churches. It's like that's a foreign idea. And who am I to think that I have somehow, I somehow have authority over the church as though I'm the bridegroom. The church is not mine. She is not yours. Not any other pastors. Not any other churches. When we compete with Jesus, it's like a man going up to another man's wife and saying, hey, why don't you come with me? And when we make much of ourselves, we put Jesus, his husbandry husbandry to the test, basically saying, I'm a better husband than you. And I don't know about you, I'm not wanting to go toe-to-toe with my Savior. Are you a best man pointing to the bridegroom? Or are you maybe just a wedding crasher trying to take it for yourself? Who are you? What needs to happen in your life so that Jesus increases and you decrease? What adjustments do you need to make? I mean, think about how liberating that would be, how free your life would be if Jesus would increase. Think of how much pressure we end up putting upon ourselves to up our own game, to better ourselves in our marriage or our parenting or our friendships or our jobs or just being a Christian. We constantly put pressure on ourselves. But the pressure comes because we increase and Jesus decreases. But when Jesus increases, we stop putting so much pressure on ourselves to perform. And we just simply trust that Jesus is who he is. And that he's saying to us, look, I don't need you to perform or do better. I'm your husband. I've got this. That's freeing. That's liberating. And when we are free of that pressure to increase... We then find true joy in leading others to Jesus and watching them not put pressure on you to be their Savior, but to run hard to the Savior, Jesus, and to do it with everything. When you decrease and Jesus increases, you don't have to be that functional Savior for others. You don't have to do that. You're not the Savior so there's no greater joy than to see those you have baptized or maybe led, led to faith than turn to Jesus because they know you're not the one. I mean, how often do we get frustrated with God because the church is always messing up? Well, that's because we increase the church and decrease Jesus. We must decrease the church, if you understand what I'm saying, and increase Jesus. Look to Him. The church is going to mess everything up. Because we're all sinners and we're all broken. 
The only reason we can see is because Jesus opened our eyes. And so we would be fools to point people to ourselves. We have to point people to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, you don't have enough in you to help anybody. You can only help them to a point. You can only serve them to a point. You can only be an encouragement to a point. But at the end of the day, they need Christ alone. And so when John the Baptist could see others were going to Jesus, that became his true joy. And the reason for that joy is bound up in the greater word and testimony that Jesus would give. The third marker in verses 31 through 36. A disciple receives the testimony of Jesus. So John spells it out even more. So he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. John gets to the point. I am of the earth. I speak in earthly ways. Jesus is from above. And so let's stick with the understanding that Jesus is from above. So he says, he who comes from heaven is above all. He, that is Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. So here's the picture. John can testify from an earthly standpoint. I know who Jesus is. I've heard Jesus. I've been around Jesus. I'm aware of Jesus. But I cannot testify any more beyond that. I have not been to heaven. I cannot testify to heaven. But Jesus can. And this is the picture even that Jesus was given to Nicodemus. That the one who has descended from heaven is the one who will ascend back up. Right? The Son of Man must be lifted up. And so Jesus is the one who's come from heaven. He has then authority over all things. His words are what we ought to be seeking because they are words that are spoken from heaven. And John says, and even still, yet no one receives his testimony. Like, you guys are believing me and you're coming to me. I'm just earthly. But Jesus is heavenly and he has a better word and yet no one is listening to him. It's a significant problem. And remember, the gospel writer has shown us in these first three chapters that the world rejects Jesus. Jesus has come to his own and his own have rejected him. Constantly rejecting him. And yet this is the world that God so loved. Just a reminder that the world that God loves is not a world that is lovely. But it's sinful, broken, ugly. And yet God loves the world. And so John says, look, nobody's receiving the testimony here. And John is not speaking universally and that no one will ever receive his testimony. He'll go on to show that there is a distinction between those who do receive his testimony and those who do not. Just like we see the distinction in the love of God in John 3.16, that God loves the world, but not everybody in the world will receive eternal life or his eternal love, right? So John continues on. <clears throat> he, give, he gives more attention and more weight to 
those who would receive his testimony. Verse 33. So whoever receives the testimony of Jesus sets his seal to this. And seal meaning to demonstrate by authentic proof. See, there's the word authentic. That's where I got all this. Just so y'all don't think I'm crazy. So to demonstrate by authentic proof the truth or validity of something to make known, to confirm, to show clearly. So by receiving the testimony of Jesus, the disciple has received a certificate of authenticity that God is true. God is true is as much a part of who God is when we hear in 1 John 4 that God is love. It is the very nature and character of who God is. Jesus highlights later on, I believe in John chapter 8, when he's dealing with the Pharisees, and he tells them that you are the sons of your father, the devil. And he is a liar. And he's a liar because that's who he is in his nature. By contrast, the nature of God is true. In truth, God never lies. He is full of truth. And he's abounding also in love. So you can set your seal to this church that if you receive the testimony of Jesus, you're receiving the testimony that God is true. And that Jesus is the one that God has sent. Verse 34. And Jesus is the one who utters the words of God. Jesus does more than just speak the word. He is the manifested word of God in the flesh, which is why the opening verses of chapter one are so important to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. We have the manifested word of God coming down in the form of Jesus. So then, therefore, all of Jesus's words are God's words. There's no words of Jesus that are lying. There's no Words of Jesus that are half true and partially not true. No, all of them are perfectly true and all of them are God's words. And so the father sends his son. His son utters the words of God and the father gives the spirit to him without measure. Meaning the father has anointed his son with the full measure of the Holy Spirit, holding nothing back. Everything that the Father has is now given to the Son. He has His words. He has His power. He has the authority. And here it is, verse 35. The Father loves the Son. And really, this is what it's all about. The Father loves the Son. The love the Father has for the world is given through the love of His Son, Jesus. The love that Jesus has for the church is done through the love of the Father. So this testimony of Jesus is less about God's love for sinners and more about the love of the Father to the Son. Because if that love is lacking, then there is no hope for the sinner. If the Father doesn't love the Son and the Son doesn't love the Father in this great divine cosmic love, then there is no hope for the world. But in this distinct love, the Father then has given all things into Jesus' hands, meaning He has all authority, all power. And what will Jesus do with that authority? John John 10 clues us in. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, 
because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. So what does Jesus do with his authority? What does he plan on doing with his authority? He plans on enslaving everybody and just ruling with an iron fist. No. He's going to take his authority, his supreme authority, authority that can never be topped, and he's going to lay down his life for sinners. This is a great love. So the truth, love, and authority the Father gives the Son, it results in blind eyes seeing, deadened hearts coming alive, Souls being regenerated and receiving the Son. And whoever believes in the Son, verse 35, what is the reward? Eternal life. The very love of the Father to the Son is now given to those who believe in Jesus. This deep, amazing, divine, cosmic love that they have for one another is now poured out onto the sinner. And so as much life as the Son has, as the Father has, as the Spirit has, now will come upon sinners. John 16 says, 16.27, For the Father Himself loves you. Jesus is speaking to His disciples. The Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I have come from God. This is what it means to receive the testimony of Jesus. It is also to receive the love of the Father. And ultimately, the Spirit given without measure to Jesus will be given to those of us who receive Him by faith. But for those who do not, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But they will remain blind to sin. They will... Unable, be unable to be sealed by the truth of God, the love of God, the eternal life of God, but rather the wrath of God will remain upon them forever. And what a pity that would be. Jesus comes with full authority and power to stand in the place of sinners, to absorb their wrath, the wrath of God on their behalf. But yet, even so, sin is so blinding and devastating that it convinces sinners otherwise. And they would still reject the greatest gift. So to receive Jesus' testimony is a marker that you have received this seal of the gospel. The Father makes your hope in Christ authentic, true. So receive the testimony of Jesus and you'll receive life. And church, the testimony of Jesus is so life-giving in not only the reality that we will live forever, but that it means that we're now covered in the deep, deep love of the Father and the Son. The love that the Father has for the Son is now ours. It's towards us. It's not against us. It's for us. And we only know that because of the testimony of Jesus. That is the Word, the Bible. And so we must be a people who are about the Word of God because it is the Word of God that truly seals our hearts to the truth, to the real love, to the real hope of Christ. 
And so there is a seal upon our soul this morning for those of us who are in Christ. And it's verified by the Holy Spirit. As a disciple, Jesus seals His love for us by giving us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the eyes to see the true markers of what it means to be a disciple. In the world of trading cards, unfortunately, there are cards that are being sold on the market as inauthentic. Right? They're being passed as highly valuable, authentic cards. But when they are then taken to the, the companies who will authorize those to the true authority, they come back really as frauds, as counterfeits. In the gospel, there is only one authority that makes our discipleship real or seals us. And that is the testimony of Jesus. And there are some who look the part. And there are some who don't. But when we consider the markers of the gospel, and what it means to be a disciple, we have to consider, are we truly a disciple or are we a fraud or a counterfeit? And we are shown today some of those markers. That... A true disciple knows that baptism or all of discipleship is always, always about Jesus. And that the true disciple makes much of Jesus in everything. And that the true disciple receives the testimony of Jesus. And so as we go this morning, let us go as disciples set with the seal of authenticity found only in Christ. And authenticity given to us by the love of our Heavenly Father.